Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm the host, Miranda Donnellan. As you may have heard in the last episode, I'm expecting a baby at the end of the summer, so I'm not uncorking a bottle of wine today. But we are uncorking a topic that I think isn't talked about enough in the OT community. While I'd love to be enjoying a cool, crisp Sauvignon Blanc while we talk about student loan debt and repayment options, I hope you'll pour a glass for me as you listen to my interview with student loan expert, Megan Landris. So I'm Megan Landris. I'm a consultant for Student Loan Planner. And all we do is help folks with their repayment plans and how to navigate their student loan repayment uh, through one-on-one consults. And so a little bit about me, I I started getting into the student loan planning space because I I started my own financial coaching practice and quickly realized that student loan debt was something a lot of uh, graduate students and highly educated folks had. And it turned out to be such a complicated debt that, you know, in financial planning or, or like the education I had uh, for training in my profession, like we just weren't really taught on. And, you know, so I felt like if I didn't have the best answers for how to tackle student loan debt, would they have the answers? Probably not. So that's why I really got into it, dug really deep, uh, learned the inner workings of the student loan system and and now that is uh, literally all I can talk about. So I'm very excited to <laughs> to talk about it today with you. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad to have you here. And when you mentioned that it's complicated debt, that's a little bit comforting because I think on one hand, I'm very grateful for student loans. It allowed me to get three degrees in five years and continue on as an occupational therapist without needing to also work full time while being in school. But at the same time, it does feel like it's a little bit of a system that's meant to be confusing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just my perception. So I'm hopeful that today you can sort of dissect some of these really confusing pieces for us and help us understand what is happening behind the scenes with our student loans and how we can make the best financial choices for ourselves and our and our futures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. A very complicated system, unfortunately. So don't don't feel like you should have known how to to navigate all of this. And if anybody listening is thinking that they should have known this, it's it wasn't taught and it's not very uh, clear even when you're going through like the financial aid process. So we'll, we'll definitely be able to dissect some of these things today and bring it down to a more simple term. <laughs> Let's start by talking about kind of the current status of student loans in our country. Can you give us kind of a picture of what this is looking like on a broad scale? Yeah, on a, a broad scale, we're getting really close to about $1.7 trillion in student loan debt outstanding. So that's trillion mm-hmm. with a T. <laughs> um, but what that translates into is there's about, um, if you broke it, it broke it down to average, how much an average student loan borrower has, uh, that would be about thirty five to 40000 which I think averages are dangerous because it includes folks that only had, you know, 5,000 that they just needed right. for their last semester. Um, so I think, you know, graduate degrees tend to carry the the weighted average um, or, or the a, a higher weight of that student loan debt burden because it's more schooling, uh, more time in school that that interest is compounding and graduate programs are just in general getting more and more expensive. So mm-hmm. um, graduates, uh, graduate students typically hold um, a, a larger proportion of that student loan debt burden. So, 
And when you were talking about that average, that was outstanding debt, right? So that, that's not the average amount people leave school with. That's the average amount people continue to owe. Is that right? Uh, outstanding. Yeah. So, you know, 35 to 40,000 average is what a, a current or a typical borrower will have just outstanding at any given point in time right now. Okay. Um, yeah, but the 1.7 trillion, that is right now what's currently outstanding for anybody okay. who has student loans. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know that in your practice, you work with occupational therapists and other health practitioners. So how do how do we, I guess, as healthcare practitioners and our student debt compare to some of those national averages? Yeah. So unfortunately, um, OTs will tend to have a, a larger portion of student loan debt. They're easily around six figures. Um, our average right now that we've consulted on is about 206,000. Um, so that's, you know, that's quite a bit. And uh, it, compared to other professions, it does make sense that it's higher. We, we do see, or, or the most indebted individuals are, are medical students uh, or those in the medical profession of some kind. So um, from a category perspective, that makes sense. It's, it's longer education, more expensive education typically. Um, so we are on the higher end of what typically we would see for you know, um, potentially a lawyer, they come second in line as far as debt outstanding to to medical professionals. So um, OTs do tend to carry a a very large debt load, unfortunately. Other than kind of what you just talked about being in a field that has maybe more expensive education, do you see other reasons why? Do you see people going to out-of-state schools more often or limited in their choices? Do you have any sense of of why specifically OTs might carry that larger load, given that we don't necessarily make as much as the medical professionals <laughs> <Right>. that are <laughs> leaving school. Right. Well, I think two two things come to mind. Um, out of school tuition is astronomically more expensive than it would be to be in state. Um, it, it just tends to be uh, sometimes double, if not triple, the cost of an in state. Uh, expense for cost of attendance. So I think that's a big thing if, if folks go out of out of state um, and they have to pay those out of state tuition costs, it tends to make the, the overall balance just more expensive. Um, other thoughts, I do think it, it does come down to cost of education. The colleges are what determine that cost of attendance. And you know I, I, in general, I think the cost of attendance has continued to skyrocket. We see, um, growth rates on cost of attendance or tuition between three to eight percent growth year to year, which is wild. So OTs are not an exception. Uh, I do see that growth in the OT market um, and, and just the cost of attendance from year to year. Um, and then also maybe another reason why balances are a little higher from who we tend to work with or the, the folks that we start to help navigating the repayment options is because they, they do have a larger balance, their income is lower. So if they've spent some years trying to, to pay this down, their income just isn't quite enough to, to tackle it as fast as you know a physician that graduates and um, exits residency, starting attending, making like 200 or 250. It's just the, the potential to be able to pay that off more aggressively is, is a lot slimmer. Um, mm-hmm. It's harder to do on an OT salary. Right. Mm-hmm. I definitely have felt that as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My own experience. 
<laughs> Something really struck me, though, about what you were just saying, and that's that the colleges and universities are driving the costs up, right? They really control what they're charging for tuition. Mm-hmm. But then loans are, at least federal loans, seem to be pretty easily accessible. Mm-hmm. And so even though costs are being driven up, we still have a way to pay for it up front. But then we're stuck with the bill later. So I guess, do you have any insight on where will that stop? I mean, is there are there any controls in place to where college tuition won't just continue to rise to the point where our annual increases due to inflation just won't be able to compensate for what we owe? That is a big topic. Um, well, what's kind of tough is the the topic points that I think are in the media right now about the student loan um, epidemic that we're in. More, it's more so in regards to folks that already have the debt. But we we do think that that conversation needs to be also redirected to look at where that's coming from. Like, what's the source of all of that debt? And you're absolutely right. With federal funding, you can borrow up to the cost of attendance. So if the school says it costs, you know, 40000 a year, you can borrow that as a graduate, you know, borrower. So it's, it's just tough because... Yes, the, the price continues to increase, but you're exactly right. There's There continues to be a way to be able to pay for it. And so there is no incentive for the school in a way to, to make that cost cheaper. No incentive at all. And um, so this is all sounding really scary. We're definitely going to get to a very positive spin to this, yes. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> We have to start with the negatives that the light just seems even brighter. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to just ease the mind of some folks that are maybe panicking right now. (laughs) Yes, we will definitely get to some good solutions. I'm excited to hear them. And as we get there, you know, we talked about how this is very complicated. and And I know we've mentioned some federal loans, but can you talk about the different types of student loans available? Which are the most common and what are kind of the similarities and differences between them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's really two broad types of student loans that you could borrow for aid. Uh, there's the private sector, and then there's the federal loans. Uh, so private student loans, that would be through just a private company. Um, typically, you will need a co-signer to be able to borrow going that route. We uh, Private loans are, are a, not a vast majority of the loans outstanding. They're about 20% or less last time I checked. Um, so not not a lot, but I tend to suggest folks, if they're going for aid, federal is the way to go because federal loans uh, are just in general more flexible. On the repayment side, there's income-driven opportunities, there's forgiveness opportunity with federal loans. Private loans do not have any of those opportunities, so it's it's tough if we borrow fe- uh, or if we borrow private, we commit to having to pay those off. There's not a lot of payment flexibility or or leverage. So those are the two like big different types. And then within federal, we could have unsubsidized loans, uh, which probably sounds familiar to some folks, where you can borrow up to $20,500 per year. That is the cap. And then if you need more than that in aid, you can spill over into what's called graduate plus loans. And those are also federal. Uh, They are different in the sense that you can borrow more you can borrow up to the cost of attendance, net the unsubsidized loan. The interest rate is typically about a percentage point different. So right now, unsubsidized loans is at 4.3%. Uh, graduate plus is at 5.3%. So those are some of the differences there. And then there's also subsidized loans as well then? 
are those pretty common or what, you know, what does it take to be eligible for a subsidized loan? Yeah, good question. So subsidized loans, those are only available to undergrads. So you may have had access to this in your undergraduate borrowing and uh, it, it does have to do with financial need. There has to be a certain level of financial need to be able to, to borrow subsidized. Otherwise, you'll be offered unsubsidized in uh, undergrad. But graduate school, it's all essentially unsubsidized. And what that means, unsubsidized versus subsidized, is just subsidized loans do not charge interest while you're in school or in school deferment. Unsubsidized loans do, and graduate plus loans, do charge interest the moment you borrow it. So that's the technical difference between the two. Okay, great. Thank you. That's really helpful. I know we see all these words on these letters that we get and on the portals and on the emails and on our FAFSA forms, and it can all get really confusing. So I think this breakdown is really helpful. Yeah, lots of words and acronyms too. We'll talk about some acronyms later. <laughs> oh, great. Yes, please. We we as health practitioners, um, we know a lot about acronyms and <laughs> there's an acronym for everything, but unfortunately... We tend to only know the acronyms in our field, so it'll be very helpful yeah. to learn some of the student loan acronyms, too. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so you just clarified what these different loan types are, but then on top of just the way the system works, quote, normally, recent legislation has made some changes to how our loan system works, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to know from your perspective, what should borrowers know? It, it feels like there's updates every few months. They seem to be helpful for us, but what are, is there anything we're missing and what should we know as borrowers about what's changing and what all these updates mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, COVID has definitely been a, a very interesting time for everybody, just personally, professionally, and then the student loan system has changed quite a bit over the past 12 months. Um, so initially when COVID hit us like a storm, they uh, cut off interest. They said 0% interest for everybody who had federal loans. And we were thinking, you know, ah, that's great, but it's not helpful for people losing their job, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, but then they implemented the payment freeze where they paused all federal federally held student loan payments. So private loans did not participate in this or they didn't have to. It was okay. up to the private companies to offer. Um, but federal loans, there was a mandate that no one would have to make payments until originally it was September 2020. Then as we continued to get through 2020, COVID wasn't getting better as fast as we wanted it to be. So they postponed it again to December. Then they postponed it again until January. <laughs> and now mm-hmm. we're at a point where payments have been postponed all the way to September 2021. And that's payments and interest. So we we okay. haven't had any interest accrual since March 13th of 2020. So that's the, that's been some of the like whiplash we've gotten on like when payments are going to be starting up. I just have a clarifying question with that. So at first, we still had to make payments. We just weren't accruing interest actively. But then it fairly quickly shifted to no payments, no interest. That's, is that right? So there's sort of exactly. two components to this? Yes. Mm-hmm. Payments and then interest. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but since end of March, so it was like a two-week period where they froze interest, but payments were still due. And then they realized, ah, this is really bad. <laughs> so they stopped <laughs> payments. <laughs> okay. 
So yeah, and and then other updates, uh, there was an announcement that they were going to change servicers by the end of the year because, and this is a question I actually get a lot is, or, or a comment that I hear a lot is, you know, oh, my loans have been sold so many times. I don't know who, mm-hmm. you know, who they were with in the past. And it's not that they've been sold. It just means that their servicer contract had expired because if we have federal loans, they're not owned by that servicer. They're owned by the federal government still. And so the servicers are who collect the payments, um, track the payments, report it to the government, and um, their contracts can expire over time. And so they had made an announcement like in the midst of COVID that all servicers were going to change by the end of 2020. And everyone was panicking because not only were we in this weird COVID period, but servicers and companies were going to be switched around and loans were going to be moving. But they pressed pause on that. I think they realized that would have been a mess and (laughs) they have (laughs) postponed it. It's supposed to be happening at the end of this year. Um, We haven't really heard much guidance or rumblings of, of like what that's going to look like yet, but it's nothing to worry about. If your loans do move from a different company, all that means, nothing changes with the balance, the interest rate, the repayment plan, nothing. It, it is just who your payments are going to be going to going forward. Um, but you will be notified if, if that is something that happens. So that was another, not change, but something that was talked about a lot. There was also a lot of talk about cancellation and loan forgiveness. And currently conversations have stopped at, I think we're at about 10,000 that they're considering forgiving. Not universally, it doesn't sound like it would be for folks in very high financial need or Mm -hmm. whose loans are in default. Um, But it it was, you know, people got excited initially thinking like, oh, student loans are all going to get forgiven. And I wasn't convinced that our country could could afford that. (laughs) So I wasn't holding my breath. Right. Then they talked about 50000 which Biden said specifically he's not going to be doing. Now, 10000 of loan forgiveness might still be on the table. But uh, again, I think it's only for those with high need. So those are some of the big talking points right now. We actually had a listener question, which I know we're going to get to later, about this idea of servicers changing. And so the question was from... Julie, and she said, I got a letter that my servicer changed. What does this mean? Do I need to do anything differently? And from what it sounds like, you're just saying that it's a different company we will be paying to, but the loan features or loan, I don't know, what is it called? Like Details mm, or yeah. like the facts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The loan details will remain the same. So can you just clarify why are servicers even needed you know, why can't we just pay directly to the federal government? Mm-hmm. If that's all they're really doing is collecting payments and tracking them. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I will say, too, it's it's a big job. I mean, these servicers manage millions of people's debt accounts. And so for the government to take over that, uh, that would be that would be a big task. So they, they contract this out. And there's been problems with that. Like, you know, the, the servicers are debt collectors, essentially. They're not really there to maximize your savings or help you uh, put together the most efficient repayment plan for you based on your circumstances. That's not their job. Their job is just to collect payments and assist you with getting on a repayment plan, but that's about it. Um, 
So, but I don't think it would be any better if the government was over it. I think uh, <laughs> overall there just needs to be uh, a better, better system, um, better customer service, better accountability applied to, to these servicers. But, you know, it's, it, that's where we're at right now with it. Sure. Now I've heard some people say that, and even particularly my, some of my occupational therapist friends that because payments are not required right now, but they continue to set aside that money for paying off their student loans, they've told me that they're still paying off their student loans at 0%, even though the loans are in forbearance. And I have my opinions about whether that's the best financial move. But since I'm not the expert, I'd love to turn that back on you and ask, you know, what advice do you give to someone who says, you know, I'm just going to take advantage of it and start paying it down while it's 0% interest? And payments mm-hmm. are not required. Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll use that horrible term that everyone hates in the financial planning world, but it depends on what your plan is <laughs> going to be. But sure. I can break it down to two really simple paths. I think if your plan is to pay off your loans pretty aggressively, like you're going to have it paid off within the next five, 10 years, you're not counting on any forgiveness or we're not taking the passive route with our loans. Um, then paying paying on the loans now could be good because your dollars go a little further with the 0% interest, but I would highly, highly recommend folks make sure that they get the rest of their financial house in order mm. either before they do that um, or in the midst of it because one very big overlooked piece of a plan, I think, is emergency savings. I think that's really important to have established, and COVID was a test to see who had money sitting on the sideline when they were, you know, for, furloughed or laid off, you know, to, to be able to hold them over. So three to six months is usually the rule of thumb of necessary living expenses to have sitting in savings. I think that's, you know, if you don't have it, this 0% period is a great opportunity to take that payment, throw it into savings and get in a healthy spot. Um, Another other, other thing I would prioritize before the, the student loans would be paying down any other higher interest debt. So if you have credit cards with, you know, credit cards tend to have really expensive interest rates, you know, double digits, oftentimes between 20 and 30 percent. So that's a very expensive debt to carry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you want to oh. prioritize paying that off before you throw money towards the student loans because student loans aren't costing you anything right now. You're going to mm-hmm. be literally paying to uh, paying extra to be putting money towards the loan. So it would be better to just put that towards the the credit card debt. But then I think when those two things are, are tackled, I think then it's appropriate to throw money towards the student loans. And uh, I was also encouraging folks to just sock it away in savings for now mm-hmm. and then drop it as a lump sum on the balance before the 0% is lifted. It'll have right. literally the same effect. Mm-hmm. But that way you hold on to the money a little bit longer in case you need it for something else. And um, when that 0% is lifted closer to September 30th, that's when you drop it on there. That's what I would right. say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that last – I think you gave a lot of really good advice. That last part is kind of what, what I've been doing actually with my student loans. I am – actually in deferment anyway, since I'm also back in school working on my PhD. So I have oh, that added yeah. benefit of I've been paying it off anyway, but I don't need to. So what I did with the zero, since the 0% interest came into play, 
I've just been taking what I would pay every month out of ch- by choice and putting that away in a high interest savings account. Of course, high interest right now is a bit of a relative term. So yeah. some of the Lower accounts that previously, <laughs> yeah, some of the accounts that I was previously getting like 3% on, it's not like 1%, but 1% is better than just dumping it into student loans right now when I'm not going to get that 1% back. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Those are really, really, that's really great advice. So Mm -hmm. prioritizing other debt for people who might have that higher interest debt, building that emergency fund, and Mm -hmm. then kind of saving away money to then drop later. There's no benefit to paying right this moment. If you have money saved up to pay off student loans, you can wait until mm-hmm. this this time period ends because who knows when it will end fully. <laughs> they have yeah. a date, but that keeps getting pushed, right? So, Yes. Yep. And then on the flip side of that conversation, folks that should not be paying towards this at all would be those going towards forgiveness. And okay. that's those working in a public service setting, pursuing what's called PSLF or public service loan forgiveness or for folks who should be taking a more passive approach with their loans and going towards the income-driven repayment forgiveness threshold. So what's really great about this timeframe is since March 2020, all the way until September 2021, this is going to count towards forgiveness timelines. So there is no extra credit. And let me maybe back up and say, when we're going towards forgiveness, Our goal is to pay as little as possible towards the loans to maximize how much we can get forgiven. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to pay a dollar extra than we'd have to. And if we don't have to make a payment right now, it's not speeding up our timeline. And it's essentially going to a black hole because we're trying to get all of that forgiven. So um, if you're going that passive route, now would not be a time to make payments. But you can get back any payments if you've made them. Uh, you can get that back as a refund at no penalty. You just have to call your service. Is that true for, for everyone, even if you're not pursuing um, mm-hmm. some of like PSLF? It's for anyone who's paid anything since March, what, the end of March 13th? Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. anybody who's paid anything since March 13th can get a refund if they need that money. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's really You just have to know. call. Mm-hmm. You have to call your servicer is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you just say okay, you want a refund for any payments made since March 13th, 2020. And I've been seeing that turnaround being like a week or two for them to get oh. that back to you. Mm-hmm. That's pretty fast for government yeah. loans in general. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you mentioned some loan forgiveness options. And I have to say, you know, I would consider myself to be somewhat financially savvy and I'm certainly surrounded by a lot of very financially savvy people. And I feel like I did not hear about these options in OT school or even from the people around me. And so I would love to take some time to just kind of dive into what these options are and see which ones might apply to occupational therapists so that listeners and myself can kind of learn what options are out there if we need to sort of get creative about how we're going about paying our student loans. Mm -hmm. So I guess you mentioned this public service loan forgiveness. And my understanding is that, you know, with public service, you're working for some sort of government agency or nonprofit, and as a result, you're likely taking a pay decrease and the government's sort of rewarding you for that. Is that roughly what this is about? PSLF, it it does have lots of pros and cons that you want to weigh appropriately for your career path. But uh, generally speaking, if you go into a public service opportunity, working for the government, a nonprofit, a 501c3, there might be 
less pay than you could potentially uh, obtain by going up into private sector work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're exactly right. PSLF was enacted to essentially reward people who were felt driven or, or uh, felt called to public service work that were being paid less than their peers, but graduated with the same debt. And so it was it was kind of like a reward for that public service work. Um, but it, it is a great program if that's where your career might be taking you. Sure. So thinking about public service in, in your description of it, it sounds like if you work for the government, right, or you said 501c3, mm-hmm. that you might be eligible. But I, that actually describes a lot of healthcare environments. A lot of hospitals are nonprofits. And a lot of OTs in particular work in public schools. So would school-based OTs be eligible or people working for maybe a university hospital that's technically nonprofit or, or some other kind of community nonprofit hospital? It does, yeah. And we yeah. do see OTs commonly having these opportunities just naturally available to, to them with this profession. So, but you're exactly right. A lot of hospitals are 501c3 status or uh, nonprofit or they're public universities that are state funded. Um, So all of these qualify. The entity you work for just has to be, um, they have to be who's paying you and it can't be volunteer work. So you wouldn't be able to volunteer at like Red Cross and get access to PSLF. You would have to um, be employed and paid by one of these public service organizations. So is this something that when we take a job in one of these settings where we might be eligible, is that something the employer is going to alert us to, or do we just have to sort of know this is an option and contact our servicer or our employer ourselves? So this is a question that you can ask, like if you're going through an interview process or you're choosing between opportunities, it is not an uncommon question to ask if they're a public service organization. And you could do, honestly, you could do a quick Google search because Hospitals are proud to say that they're 501c3s, and um, public universities will appropriately display that they are tax-exempt. So you can tell maybe by a quick search on your own, but another uh, surefire way to know if they qualify is you could submit what's called an employment certification form. So if you're employed by this organization, you want to confirm if they're eligible for PSLF. You complete this form with basic information about the employer yourself and you send it to a company called Fed Loan Servicing. And this is one of those servicers that service government loans, but this company in particular is who the government has deemed responsible for PSLF. So you send it to this company, they review it, they probably will run the employer's EIN number if they've never seen it before, just to make sure that they're tax exempt. They'll get back to you and say, hey, congrats, this employer qualifies. Uh, you're going to be eligible for PSLF. And if your loans are not with Fed Loan Servicing, they will move your loans over to that company. So that's something that that employment certification form initiates for you. Let's say someone's eligible for PSLF. And then what does that actually mean practically on a month-to-month basis as far as payments and the overall plan for repaying those loans? Yeah, so public service loan forgiveness is forgiveness after 120 qualifying payments. So I think a common misconception is that this program is a 10-year program. Uh, it, it is kind of, but more technically, it's 120 qualifying payments, which shakes out to 10 years if you were perfect and consistent. Um, now, there's five total 
qualifications you need to check the box for to receive this forgiveness after 120 payments. And this is only in regards to federal loans. Um, but first and foremost, we have to be working for that qualifying employer. So that's, that's the very first thing we need to confirm. Second, we have to be working full-time. And PSLF determines that as 30 hours on average or more, unless the employer has a different definition. So if the employer says you have to work 35, then that's full-time for, for you to qualify. Third qualification is you have to have the correct types of loans. And so you need to have what's called direct loans. And if you've borrowed after 2010, there's not a chance that you don't have these if you borrowed federally, but some loans that are from prior years that could have been issued to you would be what's called FFEL loans or family federal education loans or Perkins loans. Those do not qualify, but they could. You just have to convert them into a direct consolidation loan. So that's something you could take a look at to see, you know, do we have all the right types? If yes, you don't have to do anything. If you have some of the wrong types, you can consolidate those specifically, not the, the correct loans. You can leave those alone, but you can convert those into the correct type to, to be eligible. So that's good. So let's say someone is now realizing that they are eligible and they've been working for an organization for, let's say, five years, but they have not been taking advantage of this um, PSLF program. Will the payments they've been making over those past five years towards their student loans count towards that 120 payment requirement for forgiveness? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And yes, there are. uh, So we we have to make sure, though, that we've checked the other boxes. Mm -hmm. So we we would have had to have the right loans. We would have had to be on an income-driven plan. So that's the fourth requirement. So as long as we were on an income-driven plan for the past five years, and our employer qualifies, we worked full time, then yes, the PSLF is essentially retroactive. They're never going to qualify payments into the future. They're only going to look back. So if you've had prior PSLF work or potentially eligible uh, public service work, it's definitely worth submitting that employment certification form to go back and get credit for those payments. And if we're not on an income-driven plan, now would be the time to, to look into that to, to make sure that we're, we're qualifying. What is the alternative to an income-driven plan? So within the federal system, there's four different income-driven plans you could be on. All four of them qualify for PSLF, and there's about five different amortized plans that you could choose from, which your payment is just spread out over a fixed period of time, and the payments are either fixed or graduated. So none of those amortized plans qualify unless it's the standard 10-year plan, and that's where they squish your payments into a 10-year period and you pay it all off in 10 years. Technically, that's eligible. You would not want to be on that plan, though, because if you're pursuing PSLF, you would just pay it off by the time you got there. <laughs> so, But if you are someone who has been trying to pay it off on that plan, but is now realizing, oh, you know, I should be on an income-driven plan so I can get forgiveness, those prior payments will count. Um, and now you can maybe drop down your payment to an income-driven option. So that's a way to, to fix that. <laughs> okay, great. So it's pretty easy to go between them or at least go from amateurized, amateurized? Mm-hmm. What is that word? Amateurized. It's hard. It's a hard one. <laughs> that is a hard one. So it's pretty easy to go from amateurized to income-driven or income-based. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just an application. You have to apply for the income-driven plan, and that can all be done through studentaid.gov. You actually don't even have to do it through your servicer. You can do it through the federal hub, which is studentaid.gov. Okay, great. And I want to bring up another kind of option for paying off loans that was specifically in a blog article on the Student Loan Planner site. And this option for kind of how to repay your loans really didn't quite make sense to me. And so I'd love for you to help me understand it better. It was this idea that you can work in private practice for home health or nursing care. So like a a SNF, a skilled nursing facility. And then it says go for taxable loan forgiveness on an income-driven repayment plan. So Hmm. what is that taxable loan forgiveness? What does that mean? And why would these particular um, like service settings qualify? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And this goes to what I've said, um, I think, in one of the other questions about taking a passive route with your loans. Mm-hmm. And this can be, I tend to see this being a common recommendation for the OTs I've worked with, is if we're not working in public service, there's not really an opportunity to do that, but our balance is greater than our annual income. So there's a, a balance threshold that tells us if we should consider this passive route. And it's if your balance is greater than your annual income, you should probably consider this passive route. But what this is, is you go on an income-driven plan. So it's not as structured as, as PSLF. You don't have to check certain boxes. All you have to do is be on one of these income-driven plans and make payments. But each of these income-driven repayment options have a maximum repayment period where you could only be paying for 20 or 25 years, which I know sounds like a long time, but if we were to treat that debt like a normal debt and pay it off within 20 years, that might still be really expensive compared to going this income-driven path. So this taxable loan forgiveness or or this passive route is a safe haven for folks whose balances are just greater than income and they're not really ever going to be able to catch up. And why we call it taxable loan forgiveness is currently, uh, kind of, I'll come back to that kind of, (laughs) but currently, um, if we have a debt that's forgiven, just in general, um, it is taxable to you in the year that it was forgiven as income. So they send you a 1099. Let's say you got like 10,000 forgiven. They send you a 1099 for that and act as if you made it as income. You have to pay taxes on it. So same Mm -hmm. thing for student loans. If we go towards this forgiveness after 20 or 25 years, whatever's left over could be taxable to you. Okay. Now this is yeah, it sounds scary, but yeah. two optimistic thoughts on this topic of taxes. <laughs> um, Can one, I just ask, like, yeah, yeah, is what you're describing what I've read of as, read about as being called like a tax bomb? Mm-hmm. That that's well, it. that term is very scary. So that's that makes yeah. sense why this sounds so intimidating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, we call it a tax bomb. Yeah, because it, it usually can be a lot. And, um, you know, that still might sound scary, but when we do the math, if we figure out how much your payments would be between now and that 20 or 25 years and how much we would need to save for that tax implication, mathematically, it usually still works out as long as your balance is greater than your income, that um, that is the better route to go. It's more cost efficient because the reality is when you get a balance forgiven, you're paying pennies on the dollar just in the form of taxes to to knock it out. And if we have 20 years to save for it, 
we can save and invest for it and be prepared. So this, um, you know, might still exist. So I'll go back to my kind of comment because right now the stimulus package that was most recently implemented, they snuck in the language in that package that any student loan forgiveness or cancellation between now and 2025 would be tax free. And that is huge you know, lots of people aren't probably aren't going to qualify for forgiveness between now and then because these income-driven plans are so new, mm-hmm. but that could set a precedent. If folks do get forgiveness on uh, between that timeline, that could make it seem expected and, you know, it could make, make it more permanent if they, if that was the expectation for student loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say kind of that tax bomb might not exist. And if that's the case, okay. then Going this passive route is great because we, we our goal is literally to pay as little as possible to get as much as we can forgiven versus right. the traditional debt approach, which is let's pay this down like our hair's on fire. <laughs> so <laughs> right. it um, can help folks in, in that situation. And you know, so that's the very first positive thought to this is that um, the tax implication may not be here. Um, if it is, the second positive thought is that we know about it and we can prepare for it. And it mm-hmm. mathematically could make more sense still over trying to pay it off really aggressively. So this is a route we, we commonly talk about with OTs whose income is just not not ever going to be high enough to to tackle that balance. Okay. It sounds really extra challenging just thinking through the way the system works but then in addition to that, that the system will change most likely and continues to change depending on the administration and, you know, what's happening economically. So mm-hmm. it's trying to kind of play the system a little bit and figure out what's going to happen in the future and what's the best choice I can make now if things um, are a little more in my favor later, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a balancing act. I, I think, um, you know, there's very few cases that I've worked on where, you know, it, it was too close to make a good decision. And, mm-hmm. and when it is too close to make a good decision between like going really aggressive and going really passive from like the total cost perspective of the loans, then we start to talk about from a planning perspective, what do you want to have your life look like over the next mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20 years? You know, are you okay with maintaining this income driven plan and continuing to save for this potential tax implication? Or are you someone who wants to just knock it out really aggressively, mm-hmm. knowing that the con to that is that we're not able to potentially save as much as we could as if if we went that passive route? Mm-hmm. So that's another really big benefit to that passive strategy is, you know, it's it's one thing to be student loan debt free in the future and pay your debt off really aggressively. But if you're student loan debt free and you don't have any savings to show for it, that that's a little tough. Then we still have to start over and start to build our wealth from that point. So if we go this passive route, we could potentially have more cash flow to put towards savings at the same time. So it's kind of the best of both worlds where we have an efficient repayment plan and we're building our wealth and growing that over time too. So it, you know, it sounds like a really weird way to think about debt, it is, but again, student loans are weird, <laughs> so we have to think about them a little differently, but um, that, that could definitely be a, a good option for those who feel stuck with their loans and don't feel like they're ever going to get out from under it. Are some of these topics 
things that you talk about when you're consulting with clients about student loan debt? You know, what are their other financial priorities and what's the best option for them, not just given their amount of student loan debt, but also kind of what else is happening in their world and and their plans for the future? I mean, is this something they could expect from a consultation? Yeah, definitely. So we we talk about uh, student loans touch everything. You know, they they affect Mm -hmm. home buying decisions, marriage decisions, starting a family. So we talk about those things and and what we what we want to prioritize. And, you know, it's a different answer for everybody. Everybody has their personal um, goals and objectives and their career goals, too. So um, it is a balance between what makes sense from a mathematical perspective and mm-hmm. what's going to make sense for you all the way around, like behaviorally, lifestyle-wise, and um, and mathematically. So we, we can break that down to make someone feel very confident and comfortable with the path that they're choosing and also know how to pivot like when life changes because life is not a straight line. So (laughs) yeah, we got to prepare for that too. (laughs) That's very encouraging. And you're definitely speaking in OT's language, looking at people's holistic picture, not just what the numbers look like on a spreadsheet, but really what is someone's lifestyle look like and um, how do we react when life changes unexpectedly? Because we, that is something we address all the time with our clients. So that's Mm -hmm. encouraging uh, language to be hearing from you. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. (laughs) One other repayment program I've heard of, and if there's more, please enlighten us, but this other one that I thought was relevant to OTs is the National Health Service Corps Loan Repayment Program. Is that one you see occupational therapists taking advantage of, and is it similar to the other ones we've talked about? So it, um, I actually don't see OTs taking advantage of it as much as I see like nurses take advantage of it. I don't know why I see nurses go that route more often, but um, it, it is... It's different, but similar in a couple different ways. Uh, And you can take advantage of all these, you know, the income-driven plan, PSLF potentially, in addition to this grant program. Okay. Yeah. So essentially it's it's a grant program where if you commit a certain amount of time to a specific uh, facility or a certain area uh, of the country, maybe an underserved area, then you get grant money uh, and they typically just pay it all out at once or per year depends on the type of program and then you can apply that straight to your loans now if that grant is not going to be enough to wipe out your balance for the commitment that you can fulfill then it could be good to still entertain going this passive route or the PSLF route at the same time and what we typically recommend there is if we are working at a public service eligible uh, location which that's very common for these grant programs, then there's no requirement for you to have to apply that grant straight to the balance. Um, It just has to go towards student loans. So what we typically recommend is let's continue to go the PSLF route, make our payments, pay as little as possible, but let's take that grant money, putting putting it in like a separate savings account and have our monthly payments drafted from that. So that's a way that we can get the best of both worlds because essentially okay. if you were to drop that balance onto the the grant onto the balance, um, you only get one qualifying payment yeah. <laughs> towards that. So it it stinks, but it doesn't, you know, move it doesn't move the needle on your forgiveness timeline. Sure. So that's a better way to to use both at the same time to where you're not actually having to come out of pocket for your payments. That's fantastic so, and really good advice. So really those 
qualifying payments just need to be the minimum they're asking for. There's, like you said, there's no benefit to trying to overpay each of those mm -hmm. payments. Yeah. Because only one payment per month counts and only, uh, you know, paying extra is not going to get you there faster. So there's okay. not really a benefit to pay extra. Gotcha. So we've talked about how the current legislation and kind of what's happening with COVID and changes in interest and payments. But before COVID, things were one way. Post-COVID, there'll be another way. It's hard to fully predict what's going to happen. But so maybe we can kind of base this next part in pre-COVID, what you would have recommended. And if you have any kind of speculations, that's helpful as well. When would you have recommended refinancing or consolidating versus keeping with the federal loans? Because you've talked about some benefits of sticking with your federal student loans. Partially, it sounds like we, you know, if you had refinanced privately prior to this, you wouldn't be able to take advantage to any of any of, any of these new measures put in place during COVID. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I actually had a client who the plan was very clearly, let's, let's go ahead and refinance because we're not going towards forgiveness. Did that right before the COVID shutdown. And mm -hmm. they were kicking themselves, but I mean, who can There's predict, no way to predict it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. There's no way to predict that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I guess when would you recommend refinancing and or consolidating? And can you actually just briefly define those for someone who's hearing them for the first time? Yeah. And I think refinancing and consolidation, those terms get used interchangeably all the time, okay. but they are different things. So I do want to clarify that consolidation that is combining loans within the federal system so we already have federal loans we're just combining them together and the purpose to consolidate or, or why we would want to is um, kind of like I mentioned with PSLF if we have the wrong types of loans for forgiveness that could be a reason to consolidate um, another reason to do it maybe right after school is for simplification so we don't have multiple loans to look at it's just one um, or the direct consolidation loan that, that it gives you. So that's that's consolidation, keeping them federal, staying in the Fed system. It does not change your, well, the interest rate would be the weighted average of your existing interest rates. So it doesn't make it better, but it doesn't make it worse either. It's just kind of okay. status quo. Now, refinancing is taking the loans out of the Fed system or taking existing private student loans to a, a different private company. And that is a permanent decision. So you want to make sure you know that that's the route you want to go because we can't go back to the Fed system if we do that. The reason you'd want to maybe refinance is if our balance is lower than our income, if um, we do want to take a more aggressive approach with the loans to pay them off. Refinancing can be a great way to reduce that interest rate, to just reduce the cost of your loan payback over time. And you can choose your term to make sure that the payment fits well within your monthly budget. So you could choose anywhere between a two-year and a 20-year typically, and that, that can be an efficient way to knock down the balance if we're, we're going that more aggressive path. So that's, that's refinancing. And there's so many, I guess, companies that offer refinancing, and they're all marketing really well, and mm -hmm. it's so unclear. I had considered refinancing a few years ago. I'm glad I didn't just because, you know, now it's worked out to be now, kind of yeah. not to, but I did think about it. I went through the application process, and when they gave back to me kind of what they could offer, it I couldn't fully understand what they were truly offering, but it didn't seem like it was a better deal 
or worth it. So I declined it. But, you know, what should we be looking for if we are, you know, having thoughts about refinancing or maybe some of these companies are advertising to us and we're just not sure, you know, what's a good deal? What should we be looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there are definitely a lot of student loan companies, uh, refinancing companies out there. So like SoFi, Common Bond, Laurel Road, um, there, there's a lot of them that might sound familiar. Um, now, it's funny in a sense because they are having a harder time differentiating themselves from each other because <laughs> refinancing is a commodity. You just want to get the lowest interest rate that someone's going to offer you. Mm-hmm. And so there's not really loyalty to to one company or another. Um, and so now they're – so a couple ways they, they differentiate themselves. One is customer service. I do think it's mm-hmm. important for a company to be good with customer service if you have a problem or if you have questions – um, but they are all generally really good at that because they know that that's something people look for. <laughs> so, but another differentiating feature is uh, some of these companies will offer cash back offers to entice you to choose their company. So that's that's been interesting to see. But really, at the end of the day, what you should be looking for is uh, the most favorable terms. And so you want to look at what your existing interest rates are. And I tend to say, you know, t- look at your weighted average of your existing interest rates because you might have multiple loans with different rates. And, you know, some might be really high where others might be okay. So you want to get the weighted average to know if a refinance could save you money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so looking at that weighted average interest rate compared to o- other offers, you just want something lower than that. So if okay. a, a company is offering, you know, 4% and your average is 5.5, then making sure that that could ensure that you're going to be paying less on the loans as long as you chose a term that wasn't longer than what you already had. Mm-hmm. So that that would be important to look for, just getting a lower interest rate, choosing a term that, that works for you and that is still mathematically efficient. And there's calculators that can help you with this too. Um, we have one on our website, studentloanplanner.com, where you can calculate the refinance savings. Oh, you know, how much would a refinance save you if you chose this option? And uh, that can be helpful just to see like the numbers on, um, you know, if it makes sense or not, or if you should, should just stay where you're at. Great. I, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, you just to be clear, you wouldn't want to refinance if you're considering any kind of loan forgiveness program or income-based right. repayment, right? Because you wouldn't be able to have that flexibility in mm-hmm. a private loan. Okay. Yep. So yeah, you want to be very confident in the fact that you are, you're committing to paying those loans off. We're not doing forgiveness. We don't need PSLF. We don't need the flexibility. So that also means financially speaking, uh, we recommend you absolutely have emergency savings before you refinance because uh, the terms for refinancing are just a little less flexible too. So if you lost your job or uh, income had changed, there there's not very generous um, forbearance opportunity with private loans compared to the federal system. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that you're very financially solid as well before you look at refinancing. I actually have another question kind of just came to mind going back to the strategy for how to sort of take best advantage of the current situation financially. So as I mentioned, I'm back in school. So my required Mm -hmm. payments were paused anyway, pre-COVID. 
But because of that, when I do make a payment, I can choose which loan to apply it to. So I'm choosing my highest interest loan and I can um, pay off both principal and interest, right? So is that an option? If right now people are preparing to kind of do one big lump sum, they're not seeking any of the forgiveness programs where it would be disadvantageous to to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the day before they start having to repay their loans, they want to just drop one lump sum. Can they choose how they apply it or or how does that work right now given the current situation? Yeah. With federal loans, there is a payment hierarchy order that uh, does exist with anybody who has federal loans. So even during this 0% period, if you make a payment on your loans, it's first going to go to any current interest charged, which is none right now. But then mm-hmm. next it goes to any past accrued interest. Okay. So if you have any outstanding interest on any of your loans, it's going to go to that first. Once that's satisfied uh, between now and September 30th with the 0% interest, any payments you make will go 100% to principal. So, okay. But I like your strategy of, of using or, or doing the um, avalanche method where you okay. tackle the highest interest rate first uh, because mathematically that will save you the most because we're reducing right. the most expensive loan. You can also entertain a snowball approach, which is where kind of the opposite. We go after the lowest balance first, and that's not as mathematically efficient, but it behaviorally helps people feel um, like they're making progress because especially with student loans, you you might have a laundry list of, of loans and it could be overwhelming. And knocking out like one or two every couple months or couple years, that can feel like you're making some really serious progress Um, because it would kind of stink if your highest interest loan was your largest balance and it would take Mm -hmm. a long time to make progress on that compared to or feel like you're making progress on it. You are, but it doesn't maybe feel like you are. Okay. So, but you can use any of those approaches to, to knock it down faster, more efficiently, and then maybe consider looking at those refinancing options you can do a soft inquiry with any company, and I typically recommend to look at two or four, two to four at the same time just to see mm-hmm. what they each offer. Okay. And closer to the 0% expiring, if you do want to refinance, you get a better offer, you can pull the trigger then while you're kind of working up to that point. Mm, okay, that's really useful. Thank you. It does sound like a lot of this, wait, wait, as with most things financial, there's some psychological and like you said, behavioral aspect to it as well, knowing what's going to work for you and what's going to continue to motivate you to work towards your goals. Mm -hmm. And it's not always just the math. It's not. Yeah. I think it's really helpful to hear and encouraging because I think, especially when we're lost in this sort of thing, we just, we don't know what the right choice is. And sometimes we'll make a a choice that doesn't feel right, but the the numbers work out, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that behavior, behavior has to come into play. I I really do think, and you've probably heard this saying too, like health, that being healthy is 80% diet, like what you put in uh, and 20% of like exercise or weightlifting. But most people think like the majority of what makes up your health is being really fit and working out. So I, I think, you know, in finance, I really do think a lot of it is behavioral. You know, mm-hmm. the numbers are really important, but behavior is really important too. And it really can impact the the success of your path or the goals mm-hmm. that you have with your debt. Um, so that's yeah. important to consider. And a lot of health too is mindset. And it sounds like that's the same with finance as well. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's, you know, yeah. what we choose to believe and how we choose to move forward. And there's so much research to actually show that we can influence our own health just by our mindset. And so I think that that all kind of relates here, I think, as well. Yeah. Our understanding of health. Can, we can translate some of that to the scary financial stuff. Yes. <laughs> what we yeah. perceive to be scary, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. On that note, we've talked about a lot of things that might be having people kind of panicking, but I think you've also shown a really bright light on that there's options and particularly if they um, decide to work with a consultant or just kind of look at their debt and, and see what kind of opportunities they have for not just paying off their debt, but also pursuing their other financial goals. You know, I I would also like to just kind of come back to this idea about debt because it's so often it is scary and mm-hmm. people might be kind of freaking out right now and thinking, I need to call someone right now for help. So can you kind of talk to this belief that all debt is bad? And can you give us a, just a last little ditch of hope um, that maybe there's some positives to student loan debt? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping sure. you'll say yes. <laughs> yes. No, I think there's definitely positives. And there is a difference between good debt and bad debt. I think uh, student loans fall into the good debt category because it is an investment in your future and your future income earning potential. Uh, You could not be an OT without going to school. Mm -hmm. And if you can't go Mm -hmm. to school without loans, then you're not going to be an OT. (laughs) So (laughs) it's really important to make sure that we keep that in mind is that you and your profession, it is possible because of your student loans. Um, now other, other good debt would maybe be a mortgage because it's an asset that you can uh, roll into another asset into the future, or it's building equity. Um, bad debts would be credit cards or Mm -hmm. consumer debt. Um, so really expensive financed cars. That's, that's considered a bad debt because it's a depreciating asset. Now, Student loans, uh, some positives about them is uh, truly there is always going to be a plan that's going to fit within your financial situation, uh, no matter what it is. And we always like to say, too, that the student loans should not be dictating your career choices. We should make a plan around what your career choices are and what your income situation is, because no matter how we look at it, we can we can find something that's going to work, whether it's paying it off more aggressively because we took a higher paying private sector job. Great. We're making more income. So let's use some of that to pay down mm-hmm. the debt more aggressively and then use the other to save more for our future. Um, if we decide to take a lower paying job because our heart is called to this public service opportunity, we may make less income, but we're going to be rewarded with public service loan forgiveness and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being able to do what we want to do with our career. Um, So I I oftentimes will get phone calls where, or emails of people that say, well, you know, should I quit my job and go work in public service to (laughs) to get these (laughs) loans forgiven? And I mean, if you're called to that, sure. But let's definitely make a plan around what you want to do with your life and what your financial goals are. Let's not let the loans dictate you. They, they don't have to. And so that's that's an important message I think that folks should know is that student loans may be scary and overwhelming, but they don't have to be with a plan that, that works for your specific situation. That is fantastic advice. Thank you. I think it'll really resonate mm-hmm. with a lot of people who are just trying to follow their calling and that's what brought them to OT. The last thing I'll say on that too is, because um, I hear this all the time too, don't get hung up on like the older generation that makes you feel irresponsible or uh, bad for having a lot of student loan debt. 
Uh, you do not need to feel that way. Things are very different now than they were 20, 25, even 15 years ago, honestly, um, in the student loan world. So, you know, um, your student loan situation is no one's business but your own. So that's mm -hmm. important to know, too. Um, we're coming out of, well, kind of, I guess it's a little past that now, but holiday mm -hmm. time. That's always yeah. when people are talking to their very opinionated uncles or, you know, yeah. relatives about <laughs> their finances yeah. and they come back and they're like, well, am I doing the right thing? And it's, you know, yes, let's continue the course. This is right. your plan. <laughs> so one, the one last thing I wanted to mention. <laughs> well, the nice thing is now with seeing most of our family over FaceTime, if they start to get too opinionated, you can just turn them off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oops. Right. <laughs> Internet disconnected. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Bad connection. My Zoom right. didn't work. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap up, I would love to just ask you some more listener questions. We just had a few more. We already addressed the one about loan servicers changing. Okay. We had one listener who asked to remain anonymous ask, what setting is the best route to work in to pay off student loans the fastest? Travel OT, skilled nursing facility? Mm, yeah, that, this will go back to my kind of general response or answer a second ago where don't let the loans dictate your career path. I think okay. you should pursue what you you want to be doing with your your profession and uh, the loans can the loan repayment plan can be dictated by that. Okay. Um, you know, but generally like going for a higher paying opportunity will probably mean that you can pay them off more aggressively. It, it all really also comes down to your debt to income ratio. Um, so if the balance is greater than income, the passive route is going to make sense no matter what um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking. And if the balance is lower than your annual income, then a more aggressive path would, would make sense. So I wouldn't think so okay. much about the route per se, but more so um, you know, what you want to do and then let the rule of thumb of the debt to income ratio help you dictate the plan route. I also will point people back. So this particular listener was asking about travel OT and if that was a good option. I think in particular that takes a very um, unique kind of person to really thrive in that environment. So I just want to point people back to episode nine of OT Uncorked, which was with Dev New talking about travel therapy and some of the nuances of what that looks like. So just to throw that out there, if people are not sure if that's what they want to do with their lives, mm -hmm. but might see it as a benefit. So we have another question as well. This is from listener Shane. Considering our current environment of low interest rates, do you have any thoughts on consolidating or refinancing student loans, which I know we talked about? Um, how do you recommend moving from a government-backed program to a personal loan through a bank or other institution? So this sounds like less about refinancing with like SoFi or Common Bond and maybe more so about seeking a personal loan and then paying off your federal student loans. Potentially. Yeah. So what I would say to that is I would definitely entertain student loan refinancing before going the personal loan route. Okay. And why I say that is student loan refinancing is specifically for student loans. Mm -hmm. So they, and right now we are in a really low interest rate environment where mm -hmm. personal loans may not be. I think personal loans okay. might have higher interest rates because of our environment. Um, so I would first go the the student loan refinancing route with those SoFi, Common Bond, um, you know, other companies out there. Personal loans could be appropriate if you can get a really low rate and it just makes more sense, but I would generally stray away from that. Okay. That's good advice. And then last listener question from Natalie. I paid for OT school with my 
or with federal student loans, and now I'm working as an OT in acute care. I know I should be maxing out my 401k, building an emergency fund, and paying off my student loans. Any advice you have for how to pay off student loans while still moving myself forward financially would be so helpful. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good question because, again, student loans come into the whole overall financial mm-hmm. picture. So, you know, maxing out 401k, that if you're doing that, oh, power to you. That is great. <laughs> Uh, you can contribute up to 19500 into your 401k at work, more if you're over 55 years old. Um, but that, that also has an interesting effect on your student loans if they're federal. If um, you're maxing out your retirement, that is a pre-tax contribution. Uh, mm-hmm. So we don't pay taxes on it now. It reduces your adjusted gross income. And adjusted gross income is what your student loan payment is based off of if you're oh, okay. uh, on an income-driven plan. So that has two effects. It helps you really, you know, get retirement off the ground and running, and it reduces how much we're putting towards the student loans overall. So if you're going the passive route, that is definitely a way to maximize or, or make the plan even more efficient. Building an emergency fund, definitely prioritize that. Three to six months of necessary living expenses. Once that's funded, you can kind of shut that bucket off and move mm-hmm. money into another priority. So, you know, paying off loans, again, it depends on what route you're going, aggressively or passive. But I think once you've got, you know, money going into retirement, once you have your emergency savings funded, once we have higher interest debt paid off, if you're going aggressive, that's maybe a time to look at refinancing or being a little more aggressive Mm -hmm. with the student loans. But if we're going passive, again, don't pay any more than you have to. Just save for that potential tax implication. Um, but, you know, focus your money on other things at that point. And so that idea about the 401k, that's, that's really interesting that even if we're not maxing it out, even if any money we're putting towards our 401k reduces that adjusted income, mm-hmm. and then that is what the loans will draw from. So we can kind of balance and sort of weigh is the, is our, my monthly minimum payment coming down enough that it's worth putting more money into retirement right now? Does that sound mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, you can balance that. The other thing you have to think about, and it might be early for like earlier on career Mm -hmm. professionals, but, you know, 401ks are meant for retirement savings. So how much you put into that savings account will dictate how much you can live off of when you want to financially walk away from your job. So if you are someone who wants to retire by 45, you know, you might need to be putting a lot more in that because that time frame is coming up closer. If you're okay with like a normal retirement age, you you know like your standard of living, maybe you can take a, a slower approach. But th- that all is a whole different topic, which is sure. retirement planning. And <laughs> so, but moral of the story there is just make sure you're saving something for it because that's the biggest bill you're ever going to have. Right. <laughs> Believe it or not, even more big big than your student loans. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good to know. I'll have to do another episode another time about planning. <laughs> And so as we wrap up today, I always ask my guests for a book recommendation, partially selfishly, because I love to read. And also, I know we have listeners that like to read and, and will leave this conversation excited to learn more and are going to want to know a next step. So do you have any book recommendations, whether just general financial advice or specific to student loans that you would recommend? Yeah. So there's one, um, I was thinking about this before our calls, like, uh, I read like all 
health stuff. <laughs> like, oh, well, that's good. I too. read <laughs> I read books on like nutrition and like cookbooks and like stuff oh, like that. Awesome. But something that's more relevant to my field. Uh, there's a book one of my colleague or one of my friends actually wrote. Uh, I went to college with her. Um, her name's Jacqueline Shattuck. Um, she wrote a book called Money Planning and Positivity: A Guide to a Better Financial Life. And it's very short short book, but it talks about the the relationship of how, uh, kind of going back to our holistic conversation, that financial planning and money is a holistic conversation. It's not just, you know, dollars and cents. It, you know, to be well-rounded and, and have a wealthy mindset, we have to have, we have to be healthy in other areas. Okay. Last question. If listeners want to reach out to you, I'll have your contact information in the show notes. But if they are interested in scheduling a consultation and getting your advice on their specific financial situation and planning, what can they expect from a consultation with you? Yeah, so you can schedule a consult, um, you know, on our calendar through our website for a time that works for you. And and what that looks like is we have a one hour session where before then you send some pieces of information that help me do the planning and the number crunching. Uh, but during that one hour call, we walk through any which way we could look at your student loans. So we do stack up uh, the different income driven plans to refinancing to like a fixed repayment option. So we look at all of that to make sure that we're we're really honing in on the most optimal plan for your specific cir- circumstances. And then we stress test that to make sure that if life changes or X, Y, Z happens, we know how to pivot. So it, it's also very educational. It helps you feel more confident at in managing your student loan situation going forward and feel you, know, you have the power of knowledge behind it too. So, um, but in that meeting, we accomplish getting a plan put together. Uh, I provide implementation steps on how to implement that plan if we need to make changes and uh, other just general planning conversations. I'll have some resources for different, like, um, you know, if we're saving for that tax implication, where to save that money, um, you know, healthy savings rate for, for retirement. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and then that consult comes with six months of email correspondence. So if you had additional questions or anything came up after that point, you could reach out to me. Now, our cost, so we charge just a flat fee, and it's by debt level. And if we're 200000 of student loan debt and below, that cost is three ninety five dollars for a consult. If uh, two hundred dollars to four hundred, dollars that's five ninety five. dollars And if you have 400000 and above, which some, pro- some people probably choked right there. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds like a do, lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you do, then that's five ninety five. dollars um, again, all comes with that six months of, of email correspondence too. So that's what you can expect. <laughs> and you're likely to save them a lot more money than that, than, you know, $395 um, in the oh, grand yeah. scheme of things is great for getting that kind of <laughs> advice and plan all ready for you to just implement from an expert. Yes. So that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It, it is fun to look at the savings and it, it, it can be quite quite a lot. (laughs) So fantastic. That's the fun part. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for bringing all of your expertise to us today and uncorking what previously might have been a very scary topic, but you have made it very approachable. And so we just really appreciate your time and expertise in sharing that with us today. Certainly. Thank you so much for having me. This was uh, a good, as good a time as you can have with student loans, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> well, cheers our, our water and coffee. <laughs> cheers. cheers. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of OT Uncorked. I hope you enjoyed this episode and feel more confident and prepared to tackle your student loan debt. If you want to schedule a consultation with Megan or learn more about the resources available through Student Loan Planner, check out the show notes. You'll also find a link to the book she recommended. If you have a moment, could you leave a review on Apple Podcasts? Reviews help other OT practitioners find OT Uncorked so we can grow our community and reach. Thank you so much for listening to OT Uncorked. It's always fun to sit down with you and uncork hot topics in OT. Cheers! Cheers!